Un speech con el acento de la reina de Inglaterra. El quinto día recita Shakespeare con gracia y soltura. El sexto día ya piensas en inglés. ¿Y el séptimo día qué? ¿Descansas? No, no. Al séptimo día ya estás de vuelta en casa con un nivel de inglés mucho mejor. Ven a Vaughan Town, un lugar en el que seis días equivalen a 500 horas de clase de inglés. Vivirás en un entorno 100% angloparlante en el que tenemos un gran número de actividades para que desarrolles tu inglés, te sueltes y te olvides de la timidez. Vence a la vergüenza en Vaughan Town y mejora tu nivel de inglés. Llama ahora al 91 133 5833 o entra en grupobaugan.com. Las mañanas son más productivas con Richard Vaughan. You're listening to Richard Vaughan Live. Hello and welcome. All right, here we are together again on a Friday. Every every week, Friday falls at this point in time. This moment of the puzzle tiempo. Friday always comes after Thursday. I've noticed that as I've as I've evolved through my life, I've noticed that Friday has a tendency always to immediately follow Thursday, and it always comes just before Saturday. So we can say that Friday today falls between falls between Thursday and Saturday. And that's a fact. That's a fact. And if you want to debate that, I'm willing to debate. Dispuesto a debatirlo. You know, to if you can prove to me that it's not true that Friday follows Thursday and precedes Saturday, to follow Sigia, yes, preceder, precede, it precedes, it comes before. It precedes Friday, precedes Saturday. Or Friday comes before Saturday. Which one do we use more? Of course, comes before. It's normal language. Precedes is a bit higher language, but it's good language. Yes, sir. And so here we are on a Friday, the last day of the working week for most people, not for everyone. But for most people, yes, it's the last day of the working week. Although I'm planning to work a little bit this this coming weekend. Yes, sir, which is just around the corner. I'm planning to do some work at home. And up in my little hideout, mi escondite, I have a hideout up on the eighth floor. I live on the fifth floor, but I have a little hideout carpeted with a thick, yes, carpet. You can sleep on the floor. You know, it's it's a thick carpet. We say, moqueta muy, I don't know how you would say, a thick carpet, but it's very, very nice. It's very comfortable. And so you can walk on it barefoot. It's like walking on the grass of the Bernabeu Stadium during the week. And so up there is where I do a lot of work. Some of the work I send to Nacho. But today I haven't sent you anything. Yesterday I didn't send you anything. No, Nacho's free. He doesn't have to do any post-production and things. Okay. So he can take a nap. For the next two hours, you, well, he need he needs to be alert towards the end of each half hour segment because he needs to come in with the radio spots 
and things. So here we are today on a Friday. What shall we do? Well, as I've told you lately, I have a book that I just published through Baugan Editorial, and it's called Gain Fluency with Richard Vaughn, and it contains 1,000 passages, 1,000 micro-paragraphs, very, very short paragraphs designed for you to memorize them and reproduce them orally, speaking aloud. In your room, you close yourself in your bedroom and you look at yourself in the mirror and you say this, You well, first you memorize the paragraph. First, you listen to the paragraph. Listen to it five times, ten times without reading it. And then listen to it again five or ten times, reading it at the same time. As you listen. And then read it aloud. Read it aloud. Not listening, of course. Read it aloud and then memorize it. And then say it aloud, looking at yourself in the mirror. Declamalo in Bothald. Yes, which means project your voice. And say, excuse me, Frank, can you help me with this? I don't understand what they mean by tuition. Does that mean the money I have to pay for the classes only or for everything? Did you understand that paragraph? That's paragraph number 29 on page 10 of the book. 1,000 paragraphs, eh? This is a lot. A lot of meat. Mucha carne. Auditiva y de reproducción. Excuse me, Frank, can you help me with this? Can you help me with this? Can you help me with this? Excuse me, Frank. Francisco, no? Excuse me, Frank, can you help me? Can you help me? Help me? Help me? Help me, la P? Lo decimos muy suavemente. Help me? We, we don't say it really. But we there's a, there's a slight pause. Because if we don't, if there isn't a slight microsecond of pause, pausa, it would sound like infierno, hell. Can you help me? No. Can you help me? Help me? Strange. This is native phonetics. Can you help me? Can you help me? Uh, excuse me, Frank. Can you help me with this? I don't understand what they mean by tuition fee. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't... I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand what they mean by tuition fee. Tuition fee. Tasas de matricula. Tasas académicas. Escrito tuition. Fee, F-E-E, means honorarios, o tasa en este caso. Tasa, la matricula. What you pay to study at a school or a university... Uh, I don't understand what they mean by tuition fee. Does that mean the money I have to pay for the classes only or for everything? What do you mean everything? Well, I have to pay for the classes. You know, the academic load. La carga académica. The academic load. I have to pay for the books. In addition to the... The books are not free. Third, I have to pay the insurance. There's an insurance... Uh, on the campus, campus insurance that's mandatory. And I have to uh, pay for a housing. Housing means the residential fee. I'm living in residential, well, in campus housing. Campus housing, vivienda del campus. 
which means student residence facilities. A student residence facility, yes, sir. And so I have to pay all of these things. And uh, this money, this amount, what they call tuition fee, Frank. Can you help me with this? I don't understand what they mean by tuition fee, tuition, tuition. Uh, does that mean the money I have to pay for the classes only or for everything? Well, tuition fee in the United States at a university is the money you pay for the classes only. Johnny, do you understand now? Do you mean all this money I'm paying is only for classes? It's only for my academic load? That's right. The insurance is separate. The books you have to buy separately and pay for separately. And, of course, the um, the residence fee or the housing fee, you also have to pay separately, which is quite a bit. It's 2,000 euros a semester. 2,000 euros per semester. But a semester only lasts four months. That are, That's what you call a quadrimestre in Spanish. I know, but in the universities in the United States, they call it a semester. Well, when did the classes start? Uh, the classes start in late August. August 29th. Okay, that's the first semester, right? Yeah, that's what we call the fall semester. El semestre caída. No, el semestre de otoño. Ah, fall. <clears throat> yes, the autumn, the fall semester. So it's, so it starts on the 29th of August. Is that what you said? Uh, yes, that's right. It starts on August 29th. The first semester, the fall semester. Yes. Which is the first semester. Uh, usually, it's the first semester. Oh, what do you mean by first semester? Could it be the second semester? Sure. But how is that possible? Well, but you see, in the United States, most universities are based on semester systems. And you can start in late August, or you can start in January. You can start your studies on January 10th or January 7th or January 4th. You see, in the United States, they don't have Reyes. They don't have the the uh, classical three-week holiday at Christmas time. Uh, the Christmas holidays in the U.S. are from around the 22nd or 23rd of uh, December to the 2nd of, of, or to the 1st inclusive, to the 1st of uh, January. And then... If the 2nd of January is a working day, everything starts on the 2nd. Nobody even realizes the 6th of January as the epiphany. It's, it's, it has never been celebrated. So that's when you start your second semester, usually on the 2nd, 3rd, 4th of January. And you can start then. You can go, if you live in Spain and you want to go to the U.S., to uh to do a degree to do a to get a university degree you can go in late december settle and and uh, and register for classes in the university and start fresh uh in january so in that case the first semester is the spring what we call the spring semester even though even though it starts in the middle of the winter <laughs> in January, uh, because it lasts until the middle of May. The middle of May? That's right. 
It lasts until about May 20th, usually. And then there's a one-week break, and you then you can start summer school. But we don't say summer semester, because there are two, usually in most universities, in most universities, there are two summer sessions. From late May, perhaps from the 27th of May until the the 1st of July, and then starting on the 3rd of July until the 14th of August, you have two different summer sessions in which you can accumulate more university credits. You can gain, you can speed up the uh, process. You see, to, to get a degree in the United States, it's a simple question of of accumulating 120 credits. Now, a credit, oh, it's complicated. It's a, but you see, a credit is a, a unit of study, which consists of 16 weeks, 40 minute, a 40 minute session over 16 weeks. A 40-minute session. That's right. The classes in many universities last only 40 minutes. Really, 40 minutes. Yes, but you see, one credit, one university credit, the definition, I think, I'm going, during the break, I'm going to look it up. I'm speaking from my general knowledge from 50 years ago. Come on. <laughs> Maybe it has changed. But if I remember right, if I remember right, sois negativos aquí, decís, si mal no recuerdo. We say, si bien recuerdo. If I remember right, one university credit is defined as 40 minutes of class session six over 16 weeks. So one session per week. Plus an additional 80 minutes of homework. So one credit, in in terms of work or focus, is 48, is 120 minutes. Two hours. You know, 40 minutes, 45, 48, well, yes, two hours. So really, one credit in terms of dedication is two hours a week for 16 weeks. That's 32 hours. Now, 32 hours. I'm going to start calculating this. I've never done this. I've never calculated the way I'm doing it now. So we have one credit is 32 hours of total dedication. The definition. One-third of it is in class and two-thirds is homework. There's a, when you go to the university, you have a lot of work, a lot of reading, usually a lot of preparation. It's a lot of work. It's not really too difficult in my opinion, but it's a lot of work and practical work, usually not theoretical. And one subject, una, una signatura is normally three, three credits, one subject which lasts one semester or 16 academic weeks is three credits. And so one subject, una sola asignatura, 
is 32 hours per semester times three. So we need to multiply by three. And then we have 96 hours of dedication between class and homework. Homework. That's 96 hours per subject per semester. Now, normally, the recommended course load or academic load, carga académica, carga de curso, we say course load. The recommended course load per semester is 15 credits or three, five subjects. And each subject is three credits. So we need to multiply this times five. So over a 16-week period, you have 480 hours of work. All right, 480 hours of work. Divided by 16 weeks, that's 30 hours a week. It's not too much, but you have to do it. <laughs> you have to do it, 30 hours a week. And that's one semester, and so you have 15 credits. So if you do eight semesters, two years, excuse me, four years, will you complete 120 credits, and you can graduate. But some people take more. Some people take 18 credits per semester, which is not necessarily recommended. Uh, but there are a lot of students who are very hardworking and very intelligent, and they can do it. And then in the summertime, they, uh, they, they maybe accumulate three or six additional credits. So during the year, they can do maybe 40 credits, and they can finish in three years. There are some university students who complete their four-year program, a normal four-year program, they complete it in three years. And there are other people who need five years. <laughs> Me, I needed four years in one summer because I took one semester off. I took one semester off, which means un semestre sin estudiar here in Spain. I came to Spain at age 20 in the first semester. I, I was in a branch of Southern Methodist University here in Spain, in La Complutense, in Avenida Reyes Católicos. And I, uh, in the first semester, no problem, I completed 15 credits. And then I took a long trip, and I didn't get back to Madrid in time to start the second semester. So I found myself, I got back at the end of January. I spent six weeks traveling around the Mediterranean. And I got back. It was too late to register for the second semester. So I found myself spending a week in Pension Gracia. You remember the other day I was talking about Gracia de Triana. Que bonita la, la música de ella. We listened to it the other day. I don't remember what song. What song was it? Do you remember, Nacho? Amitriana or algo así. That was that what it was called? Gracia. Can you find it again? Let's see. YouTube, I think it was called Amitriana. Graz con Gracia de Triana. And I'm not necessarily a big fan. Yes, Amitriana. This was recorded in 1967. It's, it's a really good piece of music. And, um, flamenco or cante. Bulerias and others. This is not necessarily my favorite music. Seguirillas and things. Uh, but I found Gracia... I met her personally because she regentaba la pensión Gracia in Calle, Calle de la Luna, here in the center of Madrid, near Callao. And uh, I met her. She was 55, I believe. And uh, 
I didn't know she was a famous singer until she started singing one day during that week. And uh, I stayed in her pension on two different occasions. Put it on. Let's hear Gracia de Triana. barrio más cañí en ese barrio Adriana parque del Guadalquivir entre Fandango y Jarana una mañana de abril vino al mundo esta serrana porque Dios lo quiso así y soy por ser de Sevilla flamenca como ninguna garzón de una sidrilla me sió mi mar a la cuna Viva, viva el barrio de Triana, ole, el barrio donde nací, tiene, tiene la gracia gitana. Vivo, vivo orgullosa de mí, no es salero ni tronito. All right, yes. Uh, <laughs> I think I see a beautiful, very, very appropriate voice for this type of singing. And very, very good, but she, she, she became famous, but not as famous as many other uh, cantoras or whatever you call them. Uh, but um, that's called Amitriana, o sea, dedicada a the that area of Seville on the other side of the river from the Maestranza and from the Giralda and from the cathedral and from uh, Barrio de Santa. Oof. I'm, I'm forgetting my <laughs> my places, but the Barrio Santa Cruz, of course, Parque Maria Luisa. There are a lot of places. Seville is in the Plaza España, hola, and things in Seville. Very nice city. Very, very nice city. And, um, but so is Madrid. So is Barcelona. So is Bilbao. So is Zaragoza. Yes. All of these cities are a lot of very nice places. Spain is a nice place to visit. It's a place, but most tourists, most European tourists who come to Spain, uh, come to the coast to the Costa Blanca, the Costa del Sol, the Costa Brava and things, you know, to, to enjoy the sun and the beaches, which is understandable. And I think most European uh, tourists, most people who come here from north of the Pyrenees, uh, don't come necessarily interested in visiting Madrid or Barcelona or Seville or Bilbao or Segovia <laughs> or Toledo or Cuenca or Avila or Burgos, etc. They come to come down to Oropesa del Mar, or down to Peniscula, or down to, you know, <clears throat> Villa Joyosa, or to Playa de San Juan. And to enjoy the beach, or down to Malaga, or Marbella, Fuengirola, these places, Torre del Mar. So there are a lot of places on the Spain, the coast. Spain has a long coastline. And, uh, but people who come from the U.S., Canada, They do. They come here to see Madrid, to see Barcelona. The people from the United States don't come here to visit the coast. It doesn't occur to them. Most Americans and Canadians are not really aware of the fact uh, that the Spanish coast is the point of attraction for Europeans. The point of attraction for Americans is to see Madrid, Toledo, Toledo, And to see, uh, Avila, Cuenca, and, well, to see, 
to see Spain, especially Seville and Barcelona. Barcelona, especially because Barcelona became very famous thanks to the Olympic Games in 1992. That put Barcelona on the map. That was the best decision the uh, Spanish government, the Gonzalez government, together with Juan Antonio Samaranch and the uh, and the Catalan business community and political community. That was the best decision they made when Juan Antonio Samaranch became the president of the International Olympic Committee, and they made the decision to 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 name. Barcelona is a candidate to be for the Olympics. And of course, Barcelona won. That put that city on the map. It's interesting because I have always been good in geography, even when I was a teenager. Even when I was a teenager, maybe 16, 17, I was aware of Peking, Shanghai, Tokyo, Osaka, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Canberra and Prague, Berlin, Copenhagen, Stockholm, Madrid, Lisbon, uh, Paris, Lyon, Marseille, London, Birmingham, Manchester, Edinburgh, etc., etc., Dublin. So I was aware of these things, but not Barcelona. I never heard of Barcelona. And the first time I heard it, I thought, será Barcelona, no? And I was 16 or 17. Which means, uh, in 1969 or something, I was not, I had never heard the word Barcelona. I never heard it. Which means, when I was growing up, and I was an intelligent student, and a good student, and aware of geography, but the, the name Barcelona, never. Never. Seville, yes. And But 1992 changed. Of course, when I came to Spain, yes, immediately. In fact, my first contact with Spain was in Barcelona in 1972. But most people in the United States and Canada never heard of Barcelona until the late 80s when it was named as the, the place for the Summer Olympics. And then it has become since more famous than Madrid. I'll be right back. ¿Qué es eso? Una amapola. ¿Y eso? Otra amapola. Este verano, apúntelos a un campamento en el que se divierten de verdad. Apúntelos a un campamento de inglés Baugan. Tenemos un montón de opciones. Campamentos en plena naturaleza, campamentos de artes escénicas, campamentos multiaventura y mucho más. Y todo en inglés. Y para todas las edades. Llámanos al 91-133-5832 y te informaremos sin ningún compromiso. 91-133-5832. Who are you? I'm Richard Vaughan. What do you do? I teach. Oh, what do you teach? I teach English. Who do you teach? I teach Spanish people, usually, sometimes other nationalities. Why do you teach? Uh, because it's fun. Only because it's fun? Yes, because it's fun. You sound selfish. And your students? Well, if it's fun for me, it's fun for them. It becomes uh, contagious. The English language becomes contagious. The students become addicted. And finally, they master the language. It's a logical process. 
Don't you agree? Después de nuestros summer camps, no querrán volver a casa. Apúntalos a uno de nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés, sin clases. Este verano, regálales una experiencia inolvidable en inglés con sus amigos. Regálales un summer camp. Más información en el 911335832 o en grupobaugan.com. Baugan Town empieza el domingo por la mañana y termina el viernes siguiente por la tarde. Son 80 horas. 80 horas de inglés real. Con gente real, no profesores. Los profesores te cuidan en clase, te enseñan, te explican, te ayudan. Esto no pasa en la vida real. La clase, el aula, es la parte de la piscina que no cubre. No tragas agua, tu instructor te orienta y te arropa. Jamás pierdes el miedo al agua. En Baugan Town no hay fondo, no tocas el suelo, tragas agua, sientes momentos de pánico, pero por fin consigues perderle el miedo al agua, perderle el miedo al inglés. Puedes recibir clases de inglés durante años sin romper la definitiva barrera de la confianza. Vaughan Town te la da en seis días. Porque aprenden, disfrutan, conviven, juegan, experimentan, hacen amigos y lo más importante, asimilan el idioma de forma natural y pierden el miedo a hablar, abriéndose paso en este complicado mundo de la comunicación en inglés. Así son los campamentos de verano Baugan. Cada año más de 3.000 familias confían en nosotros para el aprendizaje del inglés de sus hijos en los distintos tipos de campamentos que ofrecemos. Por ejemplo, programa completo de inmersión en inglés con alojamiento incluido. Tus hijos hablarán inglés durante todo el día mientras participan en talleres, juegos y actividades deportivas y multiaventura. Y todo eso sin clases. Todas las modalidades de campamentos Baugan están diseñados para niños y niñas entre 6 y 15 años, independientemente de la programación o la instalación. En nuestros campamentos de inglés se acostumbran a utilizar el inglés sin miedo y con total confianza, en un entorno rural, acogedor y seguro. La coordinación pedagógica de Baugan asegura un ambiente de inversión, cuidado y de calidad. Tráelos a nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés. 911335832. 911335832. Ahora con nuevas facilidades de pago. Agua plazos sin intereses. Llámanos al 911335832. Campamentos de verano Baugan. El líder del sector. 911335832. No lo dejes para el último momento. Aprenderán inglés mientras viven mil aventuras. No olvides preguntar por el resto de campamentos e inversiones de la línea Junior de Baugan. You're listening to Richard Vaughn Live. Welcome back. Okay, second half hour. They say the best things in life are free. Do you agree? An in-bedroom home, five cars, a private jet, and a well-stocked wine cellar? I finally feel happy. All right. Uh, this is paragraph 394 uh, from my new book, Gain Fluency with Richard Vaughn. Let me read the paragraph one more time, or several more times. 
<sighs> they say the best things in life are free. They say the best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees because I want money. Yes, lyrics. Money by the Beatles. I can't remember. The best things in life are free, but you can keep them for the birds and bees. Now give me money. Money. It's called Money by the Beatles. It's one of their early songs, maybe 1965, 1964. Dicen que las mejores cosas en la vida son gratuitas. Pero vamos. Los dejas para los pájaros y los abejas. Dame, dame dinero. It says, they say the best things in life. Can you put it on? Do you find it? The best things in life are free. Yeah, let's hear it. what I want. Eso es lo que quiero. <laughs> John Lennon says, the best things in life are f okay, but you can keep them for the birds and bees. Now give me money. That's what I want. That's what I want. Eso es lo que yo quiero. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I want. Your loving gives me a thrill. But your loving doesn't pay my bills. Now give me money. Tu amor me da emoción, pero no paga las facturas. De luz y agua. But your loving doesn't pay the bills. Now give me money. All right. That's what I want. Okay. I don't necessarily agree with John Lennon there. But in any case, but it's a bit connected to the paragraph 300 and... 90, donde estaba? I've lost my place. Ah, 396, 394. They say the best things in life are free. They say, se dice que, o ellos dicen, dicen que, they say the best things in life are free. Do you agree? Do you agree? Now that I have a 10-bedroom home, five cars, a private jet, and a well-stocked wine cellar, I feel, I finally feel happy. All right. Uh, this is not me. This is another person speaking. Now that I have a ten-bedroom home, una casa de diez dormitorios, no? five cars, a private jet, and a well-stocked wine cellar. Yes, una bodega de vino. Bien. How do you say well-stocked? Well-stocked. Bien almacenado. That means a lot of bottles of wine. Yes, es bien estocado. <laughs> cellar. A wine cellar es una, una bodega tipo bajar escaleras al sótano. Es un sótano de vinos. You know, a wine cellar. You see the word cellar. It's interesting about this word. Cellar. 
It's interesting about English spelling and English pronunciation. Cellar. It's the spelling is Theyar. C E L L A A R. Theyar. Con C. The pronunciation is cellar. Now, un vendedor también is a seller. Seller. Bueno, uno que vende is a seller. S E L L E R. Seller. Con S y no con C. Y con E R al final. Es el que vende. The buyer and the seller. Ahora, un vendedor is a salesman. A salesperson. A saleswoman, a salesperson. A salesman. Es un vendedor que es representante de un producto. O de un servicio. That's a salesman. Now, the seller is el dueño que en a, una, para una enajenación de un bien. Se vende su casa. That's the seller. And the buyer is the person who buys. But wine seller, so a seller, a storm seller, es un refugio ante tormenta, anti, anti, anti tormentas. You see, in the United States, many houses have a storm cellar in case of tornadoes or very, very strong storms. And you've seen it on the movies and they go down underground and they wait down underground in the storm cellar. <clears throat> the storm, now wine cellar is the word we use for la bodega personal o un restaurante puede tener debajo en el sótano. Con la temperatura más fresca para los vinos. That's called a wine cellar. A wine cellar. So, this person apparently is rich. This person has a ten-bedroom home. This person has five cars. This person has a private jet. Avión privado a reacción. And a well-stocked, con guión, well-stocked wine cellar. With the best wines from Bordeaux, uh, from Burgundy, area Burgundy, La Rioja, Rivera del Duero, and the best wines from Australia, from Chile, and from Argentina, and from California. There are even good Texas wines now. <clears throat> yes, I don't know. The best Texas wines. Yes. Let's see. Big and bold, these wines stand up to Texas T-bones and smoky brisket. Okay. Aye. There's a Malbec. So they're using perhaps Argentine technology, eh? Landon Winery Tempranillo Reserve. So the Texas wines. Yes, Texas wines. The best Texas wines. Not bad. Texas is becoming a, a wine producer. Well, there are a lot of wines. My God. Texas has become an important wine producer. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, I've only drunk, if I remember right, I've only ordered one Texas bottle of wine. I was in Fredericksburg. El Burgo de Federico, Fredericksburg, is a German, originally a German community. In central Texas. It's a very famous town, by the way. Fredericksburg, Texas. If you ever visit Texas and you have enough time, I recommend you spend a, one night or two. No, well, one night is enough. In Fredericksburg, and you, there's a very good museum. A very important museum. 
in Fredericksburg, a very interesting museum. It's the Nimitz Museum. Museum Fredericks, Frederiks. I don't know how to spell Frederick, Fred, Fredericksburg, Texas. There's a museum there. The National Museum of the Pacific War. Museo Nacional de la Guerra del Pacífico. And I've been there. I spent about an hour and a half in that museum. And it's maybe the best museum about the, the war in the Pacific between the Americans, Australians, British, and Japanese. Because the countries that were, that were involved in the Pacific campaign against Japan were the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, I think India, to a certain extent, India, and, and the British as well were involved. Everybody, all of it, it was a world war. Now, the best museum probably is in Fredericksburg, Texas. And Fredericksburg is not a very big town. I'm th- I would say maybe 20,000 people only. Let's see, Fred, Fredericksburg, Texas. Fredericksburg, Texas is in the hill country in Texas. Population 11,000 people only. Less than I thought. Uh, but it's a famous town. And uh, we stayed there once for one night only, I think, only one night. But in a very, very interesting hotel. Very nice. With an enormous room. Well, it was really, it was a house. We stayed in a house. And uh, I think it's called the Axe House. I can't, I don't remember what it's called. And we stayed there in Fredericksburg. And of course, we uh, we went to a, a rest. We had dinner in a restaurant, very elegant restaurant, like a five fork restaurant. You know, in Fredericksburg, I don't remember the name. <laughs> Let's see. And a fine dining restaurant. Let's see if I can find the name of the restaurant. Maybe it's the Cabernet Grill. I don't know. The Hilltop Cafe. I think it's the Hilltop Cafe. The Hilltop Cafe. El Café Encima de la Colina. The Hilltop Cafe. Mm, I'm looking at a picture of the Hilltop Cafe right now. And uh, I, I think that's where we had dinner. And that's where I ordered I ordered a a bottle of Texas wine for the first time and only time in my life. And uh, it was good. But it wasn't the Hilltop Cafe. Now that I'm looking carefully, it wasn't the Hilltop Cafe. I just don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember. And that was about, I would say, nine years ago, maybe. Nine years ago. Nice place, Fredericksburg. But why am I talking about that? I don't know. As usual, I go off on strange tangents sometime. But I was talking about the things in life that are free. And I was talking about a well-stocked wine cellar. And that got me onto California wine, Australian wine, Burgundy wine, Bordeaux, Rioja, and Ribeiro wines. There are a lot of good wines. Spain has good wine everywhere. In Madrid, in Alicante, in Valencia, 
in Galicia, La Ribera, Ribeira Sacra. It's really, really good. There are a lot of good wines everywhere now. Vinos de Toro have become very good. Forty years ago, you needed a spoon to eat Toro wine. Pastoso. But now it's good. It's a lot better. And things. There's a lot of good wine. Why am I talking about wine? Because I'm talking about this person, this man, who's rich. He has a ten-bedroom home. He has five cars. He has a private jet. And he has a well-stocked wine cellar. And he says that, finally, I feel happy. All right. So this person is a materialist, like Madonna. I live in a material world, a material girl in a material world. All right. And this man, too. And he's speaking a bit sarcastically. Es un hombre sarcástico. Con ironía. They say the best things in life are free. They say the best things in life are free. Do you agree? Esto rima. They say the best things in life are free. Do you agree? Do you agree? Now that I have a ten-bedroom home, five cars, a private jet, and a well-stocked wine cellar, I finally feel happy. Okay. So apparently this man wasn't happy when he didn't have material possessions. So, this man believes that happiness is in accumulating material wealth. And that's not true. Don't you agree? <laughs> uh, can you be happy earning 1,000 euros a month? It's more difficult. Well, it depends on... Well, it depends. It depends. I've met people who who lead very simple lives. Very simple lives. Nacho, can you turn down Nacho? Can you turn down the... a little bit? All right. Nacho is doing some recordings and he's not using his headphones and the sound penetrates through the walls. Yeah. And so, I've met people who I consider happy. I mean, when I was here, when I came to Spain and permanently... In 1974, uh, for the first three or four months, I didn't have much money. I could barely make ends meet. I could barely make ends meet. You got a fin de mes. But I was happy. Of course, I was only 22. And I turned 23 in November of that uh, during those four months, I was, I was happy-go-lucky. I'm, I'm, I've always been a happy-go-lucky guy. Happy-go-lucky. Happy-go-lucky. Interesting expression, happy-go-lucky. Va con guiones. Feliz guión ir guión suertudo. Feliz ir suertudo. ¿Qué significa eso? A happy-go-lucky person doesn't make plans and accepts what happens without being worried. Carefree. Devil may care. A carefree person. Born free. Happy-go-lucky. Happy-go-lucky is una comedia británica del 2008. Also, okay. There's a British comedy. Happy-go-lucky. Let's see how they translate it here. Despreocupado. Yes. Let's see. Vivir el momento. Happy-go-lucky. 
And I've always been a happy-go-lucky guy. Uh, I think my parents maybe <clears throat> brought me up that way. I'm not sure. But very focused and serious from sports. And I passed that on to life. Someone who is ha- happy-go-lucky enjoys life and doesn't worry about the future. That's perfectly correct. I've never worried about the future. Never. Uh, you can't. The future is forged in the present. So you need to pay attention to the present. If you want your future to be good, don't look into the future. Look at today and make sure that what you do today is the greatest quality possible. And then every tomorrow, tomorrow the same, and the day after tomorrow the same. And you will see that uh, the future will be good if you focus on the present. And don't worry about the past. The past is agua pasada, que molino no mueve. No mueve molino. We say the past is water under the bridge. In English, we don't talk about the water mill, el molino de agua. We say the past is, it's, that's water under the bridge. Agua que ya pasado por debajo del puente. That's water under the bridge. It's not going to influence anything for you now. I mean, look at Rafa Nadal the other two weeks ago in in Melbourne playing against Medvedev in the finals of the Australian Open. He lost the first two sets, and he was losing the third. And then he decided, I think, in the in the fifth game, said, okay, ahora empezamos, ahora empiezo. <laughs> I said, he said, now. And he started playing, and he started winning. And he beat Medvedev. He beat the guy. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder if he will win the French Open this year. Maybe. 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 We'll see. He has 21 Grand Slams. Quite incredible. But uh, happy-go-lucky. He seems a little bit... He's very seriously focused when he's training. But I have a feeling he's a happy-go-lucky guy. Carefree, casual, easygoing... Yes, aquí dice también irresponsable, which is not true. That's completely wrong. A happy-go-lucky person is not necessarily, was not irresponsible. You can find irresponsible people who are happy-go-lucky, but it doesn't imply, happy-go-lucky doesn't imply at all that that person is irresponsible. Happy-go-lucky, it's in American English, Okay, in British English, according, look, according to, and let's see, happy-go-lucky, according to, as to Collins, Collins, diction, the Collins Dictionary. In British English, happy-go-lucky means carefree, easygoing. Well, in American English, too. And then they say, happy-go-lucky in American English means trusting cheerfully to luck, happily unworried or unconcerned. Tambien, it's the same. But I like the way they say, trusting cheerfully to luck. I love that expression. Confias cheerfully. Con, con, de, de forma risueña. Confias de forma risueña en la suerte, en la buena suerte. Yes, felizmente despreocupado. Yes. Happily unworried or unconcerned. I'm usually that way, yeah. I've been that way all my life. 
So, except when I was running or playing golf, I was very serious. <laughs> Not true. Only when I was playing. A bit like Nadal. When you, when you, it's interesting that when you see Rafa Nadal in interviews or outside, off the tennis, not on the tennis court playing, but you see him in any other atmosphere. He seems like a very nice guy. Very, what you call Fercano. You know, very close. A very, how do you say Fercano? In this, very approachable. A Fercable. I would say Fercano would be approachable. But when you see him on the tennis court in the middle of a match, he looks like a an animal, an animal, little tennis. He looks, he's focused, he's serious. And of course, and, uh, he looks hard, you know, and tough. Just the opposite. And then when he wins or loses, he takes off his headband and then becomes Rafa Nadal, the happy-go-lucky Rafa Nadal. So he, he transforms when he's on the tennis court. It's interesting. Happy-go-lucky. All right, well, let's go back. Where was I? They say the best things in life are free. Do you agree? Now that I have a 10-bedroom home, five cars, a private jet, and a well-stocked wine cellar, I finally feel happy. So this person, as I said before, is a materialist. like, And he wants to accumulate things. Five cars. A private jet. But Richard, yeah. If you were a multimillionaire, would you have a private jet? Yes. Well, it depends. I don't know how, how much does a private jet cost? I mean, how much does a Learjet cost? Let me see. Uh, a Learjet, a Lear 35, it's not too expensive. Well, come on. No, I don't believe it. All right, let's see. It, bought, it costs between $800,000 and $900,000. So, 800,000 euros. Comprar un jet privado con por lo menos one, two, three, four, five, cinco ventanas laterales. That means maybe you can have 10 people or 15, 10 people in the jet comfortably. Let's see. Acquisition cost for a Learjet 35 typically ranges from $800,000 to $900,000. All right. Roughly $300,000 more than direct competition, such as the Falcon 10 and Citation. All right. Hmm. That's cheap <laughs> to me, you know? It's the same as buying a house, you know, buying a flat in Chamberí, in the barrio Chamberí de Mari, 800,000 euros, and you can buy a private jet. Of course, then you need to contract the services of a pilot or two pilots, and you need to buy the fuel, you know, the combustible for it. You need to have the parking. You need to pay the parking in a hangar in an airport. And you need to have landing. You, you, you need to pay the landing fees. So there are a lot of costs involved, of course, in owning a jet and maintaining a jet. 
Lear 45 operating costs. I'm fine. I'm learning new things today. Wow. All right. Total cost per year. Uh, $70,000. Engine overhaul. 127,000. Wow. Jesus Christ. This is total annual budget. Presupuesto anual, 800,000 dólares. So the annual maintenance budget is more than the cost of the jet itself. I mean, every year you spend more than the cost of buying the jet. So if I were a super multimillionaire like Bill Gates, yes, I would have a private jet. Why not? Otherwise, no. I'll be right back. (laughs) 